Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our Daniel study. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open up to where we ended last week, which is at the beginning of Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. Papa Fred, would you open us in prayer, and then we will… Our plan today is to get through the very famous Fiery Furnace episode, so uh, that is where we plan to end up today. But uh, Papa Fred, can you pray for us? Thank you, uh, Mark. Father God, um, as we sit down to study uh, chapter 3 in Daniel and, and to, to exposit this text, uh, we need your help. We need your spirit um, to uh, speak to us, to embolden us and, and enlighten us. And as a, um, as a motivation, I, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm reading from uh, verse 17 of chapter 3. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. I guess the question is, who, who do we worship? And Lord, we, we come before you today in humble submission to worship you, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Be with us this afternoon in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Papa Fred. And just to sort of, sort of review and add maybe a little bit to what we said at the last uh, Sunday, if you remember, obviously, Nebuchadnezzar has had this dream of the statue with the gold head, which is, represents him, and then you have seceding uh, empires going down with silver and uh, bronze and, and uh, clay and iron. And Nebuchadnezzar is told that the head of gold is, of course, he himself. And so, instead of being humbled by the vision where the stone of the Messianic kingdom is going to come and destroy it, and one day the, the Davidic king will reign forever, instead of being humbled by that... Uh, you know, one commentator said he, he could have built uh, a statue that had gold, silver, bronze, all the different elements, and put a giant stone at its feet and said, hey, one day the Messiah is going to take over this world. He could have done that. Uh, don't think that would have been a great idea either, but at least it would have showed some humility about the vision. Instead, he makes the whole thing gold, right? Saying, basically, I don't want to ever give up my reign. And uh, some people have speculated, and Papa Fred, you were saying something along these lines, that... Um, the clay feet, the idea of the iron and the clay not mixing was the weakness of future kingdoms. And so perhaps Nebuchadnezzar, in an effort to unify his kingdom, does what he does in this chapter. So he takes the dream and says, okay, I'm the head of gold. I'm going to make a 90-foot statue of gold representing me and my kingdom. And to make sure we don't have feet of clay mixed with iron where they don't really make... We're going to try to unify our kingdom around one thing, which is this religious object of worship. And if we can have all the governors and prefects and magistrates and all the different leaders of our Babylonian empire, if everybody can come here, bow down to the same object, then we can actually prevent the loss of, of unity. We can have true unity. And it's really a kind of perverse way of trying to reverse the Tower of Babel, where you have all the different languages and peoples bowing down over, over one, under one supreme object, which is not God who made us, but, but Nebuchadnezzar ourselves. And so, Papa, can you say a little bit about what you were explaining about bringing together all the leaders of Babylon? Um, the, uh, one of the commentaries that we were using makes a really interesting point, and, and I like history because these things really happen. I mean, it's just not... I, a good example is um, um, Jonah in Nineveh. Uh, you know, he goes up and he preaches and everybody repents. Well, uh, if you... History uh, um, uh, reflects that there were 
some major earthquakes. There were some um, uh, solar eclipses, these types of things. And, and, and people of this age were very suspicious of these things. So they were already very sensitive to what was going on in nature. It's almost like God had prepared their hearts for Jonah's message. So um, this guy, uh, Sprinkle, says that historically Nebuchadnezzar had to put down a political rebellion in December of 595 in which many leading officials, including uh, a guy whose name I can't pronounce, were executed. Uh, commentaries think that putting down that rebellion may constitute the motive for Nebuchadnezzar's demand that his provincial officials worship his image as an expression of loyalty. In other words, a reaffirmation of who he was. And, and he lists every official, every level of bureaucracy, you know, the satraps, the governors, the magistrates, the legal, and all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, these leaders were not immune to rebellion and, and uh, insurrection. So it could be this was a test of their loyalty, but he also had in mind the head of gold and all that kind of stuff. So I don't, I don't know how that fits in. But. No, that's helpful. Uh, okay, so let, let's get in here. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, which is in 3.8. Uh, Greg, can you read 3.8 through 18? Yep. <clears throat> All right, let's read. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So you see here, uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes use of music, and it's, it almost is strange how repetitive this is, right? Both with the leaders and with the, the instruments that are used. But clearly, this is not by accident. And some people have pointed out, all these musical instruments may have been a way that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to use the beauty and the aesthetic pleasing nature of the music that was going to be there in order to sort of blind us emotionally to what's really going on. And um, you can think about ways to apply that in our world. How easy it is for, I mean, this is so obvious to point out, but Hollywood. Hollywood has hundreds of millions of dollars for so many of the movies they make, and it is not hard for Hollywood to put things that are displeasing to God 
in an aesthetically pleasing way, right? It, it may be music that manipulates us. It may be the, a, a sentimental storyline. Uh, it may be whatever it may be, but it is not hard to use sentimentality and a certain kind of script and a certain kind of music and editing and whatever it may be to make our emotions feel sympathy for something we should not feel sympathy towards. It might make our emotions feel a, a kind of affection for something that d- should not be pleasing to us. And uh, love, uh, true love, uh, rejoices in the truth and does not rejoice in evil, and sometimes we can be manipulated into doing the reverse of what we're supposed to do. And similarly, Nebuchadnezzar is using music. No doubt it was pleasing music to hear. I'm sure he had very good music, and using that sort of to mask the evil of what was going on and to sort of get people's emotions to be sympathetic to what was happening. But other insights from this past. John Lennox says it's seduction, that uh, music can seduce. Now, every, you know, we've talked about this every generation that's been alive, that, that we're influenced by our music, but it's not any accident in verse 7, verse 5, verse 10, verse 15, they mention these identical same instruments. So he's, he's, it's, whenever the Bible repeats something multiple times, it's for that purpose to emphasize. And so the, the purpose of this was seduction, to, to go along with the ritual of paying respect and homage to this image. And, and so... Uh, Bodhi uh, Bakum the other day had an um, um, interesting clip on Disney. And I'm not anti-Disney, guys, but he, had a, he picked about half a dozen different uh, movies, which, some of which I, I n- never heard of. But he actually showed the words, and they represent pantheism and every other uh, idolatry imaginable if you just read the words. Now, I can't hear, so I don't get to see. I can't always hear the words, but uh, if, you, if you actually read the words, they're not good. They're, they're a different worldview than what we... So, words matter, music matters, and, and I think he was using these instruments, and they're a cacophony of of cultures. There's Greek instruments, there's Assyrian instruments, there's Babylonian instruments, so it's like the, the, the symphony orchestra uh, performing for this uh, dedication service. Mm. Uh, Scott, insights on this part of the passage? Yeah, well, I think one of the big things to, to remember at the outset, like, like uh, purpose of, of the passage as a whole, just to keep in front of us, would be uh, the author, Daniel 3 here, is holding before us this example, this wonderful example. It's like we were just talking about the, the Hebrews 11 passage. Like it's, it's this example of these men who remain faithful under immense stress, and he, it's being held out before us so that we would respond in the same way when we're pressured to do something sort of against God's will, against God's word. We, we want to respond like this. So I think that's a big picture. This is why it's here, so that we would respond like this. I think another thing of repetition in here, it keeps saying set up. If you notice that set up, set up, set up, set up over and over and over again. And then ultimately Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down to something I have made. Like there is like pushing through all of the sentimentality or whatever. At the end of the day, you're bowing down to something that's been man-made. You're going to bow down to something that's been set up. I mean, how foolish this is at the end of the day to cut through that. But I think then these guys, these Chaldeans, some people guess that uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got appointed above them. They got, they got bypassed at the end of chapter two. And they're jealous, likely, and they're full of envy. And so what do they do? They're, they're waiting for this opportune time to sort of catch them in something. 
And then they, they've, they've caught them in this thing, and they go to Nebuchadnezzar. They have no compassion whatsoever for, for, in, in the, what the words they say. But I just thought it was interesting that how one guy just said, I think it was Ian Duguid said that uh, this happens in workplaces all across the country where someone else gets promoted over them, and then this envy, this jealousy can creep into to the heart, and you, you want to gossip and slander those who, such as a, a simple application where these guys are likely envious, and, the, and they go in their opportune time to sort of throw them under the bus as best they can. One other um, uh, item that um, one of the commentators used was the, um, the budding anti-Semitism uh, that this reflects. That you Remember in Jeremiah, this is a very insightful passage, it's Jeremiah 29. He tells the captives in Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For if in, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Well, just real quickly, the Jews were masters at that. In fact, after the captivity, many of them didn't go back home. That's part of the diaspora or the dispersion. They stayed, they, and a thousand years later, they were head of all the, the banking houses in Europe. They, they were successful wherever they'd been planted, and there was je- jealousy. Jealousy that these guys were promoted. I mean, Daniel helped with their promotion the first time. Now they're promoted again after this incident, but uh, still, it's jealousy, and, and that happens everywhere, regardless of race, creed, or color. Um, I think another thing we can take from this is the importance of substance over style. Um, we need to evaluate the content of things. No, again, no matter how aesthetically yeah. pleasing it may be, no matter how emotionally moving it may be, what are they actually saying? Um, because, you know, I've, I've so many students that I work, you know, I work with at Prince that's, well, you know, I don't listen to it for the words. I listen to it because I like the music. And it's like, I get what you're saying, but at the same time, Sometimes just engaging in the music is indulging yourself in the content to some degree because you can't really separate um, the style from what that style is intending to communicate. I mean, style is often wrapped up with a, a, an intention of conveying the message so that it has a certain impact on us. Um, and so we have to be very careful um, thinking, well, you know, I'm, I'm just going to sift out the you know, sift out the, the content and just enjoy the sound of it. Well, it's like, in some ways, the sound is tied to the content. I'm not going to say that absolutely so, but in a lot of ways it is. And I think also a second thought flowing from this, you'll hear a lot, we got to redeem the culture. Uh, some things aren't redeemable, guys. Some things can't be redeemed. Some things like idol worship, you don't redeem idol worship. You get rid of it. You don't engage in it. You refuse it. You reject it. Uh, there are many today, well, if we can, you know, find in, you know, modern ways of thinking and, you know, modern ideologies, well, there's, there, there's got to be some good in there that we can extract um, and make use of as Christians. And there's some things that just aren't redeemable. There are some things that are inherently corrupt. Like there's nothing about this idol and the worship that's taking place that you can extract something good for the people of God to, to take and say, well, we, we can do that part of it because that, you know, that's good, but the rest of it we reject. Some things we ought not to participate in at all and we ought to reject wholesale. Now that's helpful. 
Uh, okay, if you look at verse, uh, end of verse 15, this statement that uh, Nebuchadnezzar makes, he says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He doesn't say who is the God who will deliver you out of the Babylonian God's hands. He's now putting himself on the level of the gods, really. Who, what God will deliver you out of my hands? And so clearly his, his uh, egotism is, is extraordinary at this point. He's going to reverse a little bit of what he's saying by the end of this ch- chapter. But um, look at verses 16 and following one more time. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I, I, love, <laughs> I love this response. God is, God is absolutely able to rescue us. We believe he's going to choose to rescue us. But even if he doesn't choose to rescue us, even if, he, even if he lets us go through the fires and not be delivered, either way does not change our decision. Our resolution is not determined by these temporary results. And if we have to calculate things in this world and figure out the cost-benefit analysis in this world before we make a moral decision, then God is not our God. The outcome is our God, right? The circumstances are our God. The benefits are our God. But when it comes to clear moral decision-making, we're not calculate. Christians cannot calculate. We can't go, well, I'll do a little compromise here. I'll get a little benefit there. That's not the way this works. When it comes to clear moral commandments, we have to say whatever the consequences are, we must submit to God's will. We must do what God has asked us to do. And um, Mark, it's kind of yeah. interesting too. Nebuchadnezzar asked this uh, question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, in the end of verse 2, you remember what he said. He said, truly your God, this is Nebuchadnezzar now, is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So he quickly forgot. Yes. Ever how long that quickly was, he forgot. Yes, yes. Clearly, his, his devotion to the God of Daniel is, is flimsy at best and doesn't last long at all. Um, thoughts about their, uh, their statement of resistance? Yeah, I would just say, it goes back to chapter 1. Uh, had they faced this in chapter 1, would they have caved? Maybe. Like you've talked about, the, the chapter 1 part where their faith was strong in terms of not eating from the king's table, I think that's just so crucial to understanding their faith now. It's, their faith has grown over these chapters, and it started small. And these small, we want to be faithful in the smallest of things, and ultimately, so that our faith will be built up. And that God came through; they, their, their trust in God grew. So, I think one commentator on, he, on Hebrews talks about how we should fill our lives with things that will strengthen our faith in God. So, we want our faith to be growing, so that when we come to stronger trials, we want to remain trusting in God. But I think that their, their response is. is extraordinary. I mean, you have the, the, one of the most powerful people in the land is, is angry, and he's saying he's going to throw you in this fiery furnace, and yet they just remain. They're, going to, they're not going to dishonor God. They're, they're going to remain steadfast in, the, in this trial. Uh, it's incredible. that the, the, the one, one guy said this. He said, real faith locks onto God. We pray to him for what we think is right, but trust him to do what he knows is best. And Sinclair Ferguson said, they want to glorify God in their body, whether by life or by death. They want to honor God. No matter what happens, they want to honor God. I thought that was fantastic. And it just reminded me of uh, two missionaries that Fred always makes fun of me for bringing up missionaries, but I, I love this. Uh, I've mentioned them before, but some of you probably don't know them. Uh, John and Betty Stam, who were missionary martyrs, died in their late 20s in China. But it just reminded me of their, John's faith especially, but they were missionaries in China, 
he was 27, his wife Betty was 28, they had a four-month-old baby girl, and uh, it was 1934, I think, and there was these communist bandits that were, had this uprising, and they came in, and they took them captive, they held them hostage, and they said that they would release them for $20,000, and John Stan, that evening, gets out, and he writes this letter to his mission agency, China Inland Mission. I don't even know if they ever got this letter, but we, we had the letter, that, it's, it, history has re- recorded this letter, and I'll just give you part of this letter that John Stam is 27, 28-year-old wife, four-month-old baby, this is, what, this is what he said, same kind of face, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he said, my wife, baby, and myself are today in the hands of the communists in the city of Singte. their demand is $20,000 for our release, all our possessions are in their hands, but we praise God for peace in our hearts and a meal tonight, God grant you wisdom in what you do, and us fortitude, courage, and peace of heart. He is able and a wonderful friend in such a time, which we're going to come back to that theme, that God is present in our suffering. He says, things happened so quickly this a.m. They were in the city just a few hours after the ever-present rumors really became alarming, so that we could not prepare to leave in time. We were just too late. And he ends like this. He said, the Lord bless and guide you, and as for us, may God be glorified, whether by life or by death. And then one guy said this about that line. He said, here's a man captured by ruthless bandits with his wife and baby daughter, and his concern is not for life or for death, but only for the glory of God. And that's exactly like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We want God to be honored no matter what happens. We are not going to dishonor God in this. And I was just thinking, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're looking forward to the cross. We're on this side of the cross. We're looking back to the cross. How much more should we remain steadfast and want to honor God no matter what the, the, the negative results may be? We're looking back at the cross, and that should... We should be just like these guys, even more so in light of the cross. We want God to be honored no matter what the results are, but we do not want to dishonor God no matter what, what the results may be. In light of that story, I think it's, um, it's, it's helpful to remember God gives grace for these things in the moment. You can't really plan you know, every emotion you're going to feel and stuff like that. This is something that day by day we strive to be faithful and we resist temptation to deny Jesus in the little things um, every day so that when a, a trial like the Stams went through, it's not like we're doing something new. Um, it's, just, it's a habit that we've developed. But also, I, I want to make sure um, we don't... There, there's a, a risk I've seen, um, a, a danger, I'll say, like with thinking about persecution, possible martyrdom, you know, for our faith. And it... it I've noticed it, and, I, and again, I love John Piper. He's one of my, my heroes um, in the faith. But the way he's talked about mission and sacrifice at times, he, it, there, there's this, this glamour, almost this romance that comes with, oh, wow, we're going to go die for Jesus. Yeah. And it's like in the moment, it's not going to feel like an adrenaline rush, like you're jumping out of an airplane to parachute down. I mean, it's literally your life's going to be on the line. And in that moment, you... You've got to trust that God's going to give you the grace to not give in to fear. I mean, because it's easy to, to look at this. Oh, wow, look, they did it. They're really about to be thrown in a fiery furnace that would incinerate them. Um, and in that moment, we need to understand if, that we don't have the resources in and of ourselves. Like the way the Stams responded, like only by the grace of God can you have that kind of rugged, determined faithfulness that says, no matter what they do, I'm not denying my Lord and Savior. But don't, again, we, we want to be ready to accept martyrdom, but don't look at it as kind of this adrenaline rush. Oh, you know, I get to go give my life for Jesus. Like, I've seen that. And it's like, it doesn't prepare you for the reality of our own, the, the, how our own sin will work against us in that moment. It doesn't prepare us for the reality of how 
those who are persecuting us, the intensity and the anger. Because again, are you ready for the world to get angry at you? Are you ready for your persecutors to get in your face and threaten you and threaten your family um, and hold the knife over your wife or your child's throat and say, deny Jesus or they're dead? And I'm not trying to like over dramatize this, but this is like, we got to feel the real life of this. And I think that's one of the reasons why, one, we live faithfully every day um, so that it's a habit should something like this come. But two, you know, Jesus said, you know, don't try to plan out everything ahead of time because God will give you what you need in the moment when you're in those situations. But this is real life. This is, I mean, like, I don't ever want to have to face this with my family. I mean, it's going to be like, I, I trust God would help me be faithful to him. But like, this is a scary thing what they're going through. This is the king with the most powerful person in the world. And he was previously before this, they were in his favor. And now he's using all his resources to bring them to an end. We got to be ready for the reality and the weight of that. And it, Isaiah 43, written a couple hundred years before they faced their furnace by Isaiah uh, the Lord says this famous promise, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Now, obviously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an unbelievable uh, sampling of this promise in a way that we're not, we're not promised literally that God is not going to let us be hurt in those moments. Because like you said, the vast majority of Christians who've been thrown into a fire have not come out without, uh, as, as they did. But the Lord will promise to be with us uh, no matter what it is that we, that we go through. <clears throat> Sinclair Ferguson, Greg, and Mark addressed this same issue. He said, don't make a big deal out of acts of heroism. Just allow their actions to speak such as Peter before the high priest to obey God rather than men. And don't make a big deal of it. And then it, 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 it is what it is. And then God will give you the very words to speak and the very actions to take. I mean, in the stands, they weren't, weren't trying to be heroes in this. No. They're just trying to be faithful and, you know, recording what they're going through and what they're praying for. And I mean, I, like their faith and trust in the Lord is amazing. Um, but it's like they weren't setting out to like, no. you know, let somebody write a biography about me, you know, about how faithful I was. It's they were where God had called them to be and they were facing what God had led them to. Yeah, one of the things I would just say on this that James Boyce brought up was so good to bring it sort of down to our level. Maybe we're not going to face a fiery furnace. Probably not. We could. But this is what he said. He said, whenever you are pressured to do something that you know by the teachings of the Bible to be wrong, your situation is that of these three men. And your responsibility before God is the same also. You must do the right. Now, the repercussions may be less severe for us. I mean, we may, people may look down on us, mock us, or whatever it is, but whenever we're pressured to do something we know uh, that the Bible says is wrong, we are in the exact same position. I, there's, you could probably tell all kinds of stories. But I thought about Dad. Uh, our dad did all kinds of jobs after his conversion. Uh, he, tons of jobs. He said that sort of like the Lord forced him into ministry and lo like locked the door and threw away the key. Like he wanted to try all these other things. He did all kinds of things. One of the things he did was construction. He actually literally was digging ditches out there and we had a whole crew of men with him and the foreman was there. The foreman had to go to like three different sites so he couldn't stay there with them. So he would just stay for a while and then go and then go. And he was there with them. And as soon as the foreman left this particular day, everybody was digging di the ditch. And then as soon as the guy left, the dust hadn't even settled from this guy's truck. 
everybody quit except for my dad was, was, was still the only one taking. Everybody else is like taking a break. Well, in that situation, my dad is facing this, this temptation right here. Conform to us, you know, disobey God. We're supposed to work heartily under the Lord. So my dad's staying digging. All these guys are done. So I mean, that's just a small example. And then they were mocking my dad. One guy in particular who was his nemesis, my dad said, and he said, he, he said uh, you know, Bob is still out there working because his boss never leaves. He was, he was mocking him, but he was speaking the truth. You know, God is, is watching, but in that, we're going to face stuff like this all the time. People will make fun of us. You're, you're a prude or whatever for you don't watch these shows, but we this is, we're just going to be pressured all the time by the world to do things that we know by the word of God to be wrong. And we want to, to remain faithful in the smallest of things. It may not be the martyrdom like Greg, like you're talking about, but we just want to be faithful in these small areas because it's going to happen, especially the, the worse our culture seems to get. We're going to be pressured on all kinds of things. And we just want to, and that's why we should bring such encouragement from this passage that these guys in the face of this, we should be able to withstand much smaller. Let, let me read to the end of the passage today, starting back in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these... Three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Do we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Now, just one big picture comment here as well. The, the, the physical deliveries early in the first half of the book of Daniel, the lion's den's coming up. We, we know these stories. These are stories we often tell to our children, which we should. The, those stories of incredible deliverance in the face of death are really foreshadowings of the ultimate deliverance from death, which is resurrection, because... In the second half of the book of Daniel, you have the persecution and the killing of Christians, not the delivering of Christians. Uh, it talks about the Antichrist wearing out the saints, and it talks about a king named Antiochus who's going to kill a lot of faithful Jews in the city of Jerusalem, which happened in the 160s BC. It's going to predict actually the death and the torture of faithful believers coming in the future. And then the book of Daniel ends, let's just flip to it since we're in the book, flip, flip to Daniel 12, the last chapter of the book, after much negative uh, after a lot of negative things that have been described, and some still to come, but look at chapter 12, verse 1, 
At that time there shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time uh, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. We see here, the, the reason God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from certain death, and the reason why He delivered Daniel from the lion's den in certain death was to show that God has power over death, and that one day, those who sleep in the dust of death will awake. And those who know the Lord to everlasting life, those who've rejected Him to everlasting shame and contempt, it's as clear a statement of the eternality and reality of heaven and hell that you'll ever find in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. There it is in Daniel 12. But God is saying, the way, if I can deliver them from the temporary fire, I can deliver Him from the lion's den, I can actually deliver you from the very jaws of death. Once you've actually been killed, once you've died, like Lazarus or like Jesus himself, I, I have the power to bring you back. So these stories are not mainly in the Bible to guarantee we will be delivered in this life from all physical threats because we aren't promised that. It's the promise that beyond all threats to our life, one day Christ is going to conquer even, I mean, he already has conquered death, but he will actually defeat death personally for us in the resurrection of the dead. So what else can we learn from the last section of chapter 3? I think it's a testimony of, number one, Thing. We mentioned all these satraps guys and prefects and the governors in verse 27. They, you know, it's interesting. They, they bring them up again. They were witnesses to this. Mm. You know, they were a party to the condemnation. Now they're witnessing the fact that they came out and didn't even smell of smoke. You know, if you stand in front of a grill or a fire pit or something like that, you reek of smoke. And they didn't even have the smell of smoke on their, on their cloaks or on their bodies. And so they were witnesses to the the miracles, the miraculous. You know, we, we talked about uh, in our um, uh, study of Corinthians uh, 12, 13, 14, the, the miraculous periods of time. There weren't a lot of them. There, you know, you had the Exodus, you had uh, Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, but this was also one of them, mm -hmm. the time of Daniel and then Jesus and the disciples. And there were a lot of miraculous miracles that took place during this time. This is one of them. A good thing to, to recognize is you're going to reach a certain point in your, your testimony to the world where no matter how nice you try to be, the world's going to reject what, you, what you're saying and what you believe. And again, it's, I feel like we've said this before, but you've mentioned it. I think it's Vody Balkum says, you know, there's the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice. Um, you know, you don't, don't, if, if you're offending anyone, you must be doing something wrong. No, maybe that's because you're doing something right. Again, we don't set out to be offensive, to be argumentative or cantankerous or anything like that. But I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not looking for a fight. They were just being faithful and the fight came to them. Um, and we need to hear what Jesus said at the end of the Beatitudes uh, verse 10 in Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the expectation 
should not be, well, if I just handle myself right, the non-believing world's going to love me and accept me and pat me on the back and tell me how kind and gracious I am and, and wow, you're so wise and reasonable. No, if we are doing what we're supposed to do, eventually it's going to get to the point that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to with Nebuchadnezzar because our faith won't mix with the world. Our faith is contrary to the world because our faith is not, not in this world or in the things of this world. It's in the God who made it and in the Savior who has redeemed us. And that will inevitably come into conflict with this world system. And so we should not expect, if we get it, it's great. But we should not be longing for and, and even craving the world's approval for our faith. Um, because it's eventually going to come to the fact either we're so desirous of what the world says that our moment like these three men come and we say, well, I don't want to offend them. I can still worship Jesus and do this. Or we're going to have the response they did and say, no, I'm going to stay faithful to my God. And you might get mad about it, but that doesn't change what I do. And I, I'm not trying to sound like some sort of prophet predicting the future because I don't have that ability. But um, if, if, I were, if I were just guessing, and, and you can never know for sure, but it does seem likely, although the Lord can do anything, the Lord can create a genuine revival that changes everything in a decade, everything's different, so, so pray for that. I'm not saying this, what I'm about to say is for sure, but it just seems to me obvious to me that the next few decades are going to be harder than usual for Christians in the Western world. And... Um, I just think that, that the, the pressure from governmental systems against real biblical Christianity is doing nothing but turning up the heat against it. And I see that unless God intervenes in an unusual way, which I pray would happen, it seems as though things are going to get, I think, harder, not easier in the next 20, 30 years. It just seems that way. And one of the reasons why we are, I think, in, in our preaching and in these settings, we've talked about this issue repeatedly is because I think we need to be prepared. This is not a joyless warning. This is actually a, a way of preserving our joy in the midst of what could come. Because if we're not prepared and things really do get turned up against Christianity, true biblical, faithful Christianity, then if we haven't been taught and we haven't been prepared and we haven't thought about it, we're actually going to be at a loss of joy because we're not going to know what to do or how to handle ourselves. It's not, this isn't fear mongering. This isn't, oh, doom and gloom. This is no, we should have our joy in the Lord so strong. We should have our community so tight in the Lord, so reliable amongst one another, so faithful in scripture, so full of praise to God that when that comes, if it does come against us more intensely, we're able to actually survive it. We're able to actually thrive in the midst of it. We're able to actually have a joy that shines in the midst of it that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have, that Daniel has, that is countercultural. It's something the world doesn't understand, can't make sense of. And, and even though we may not be delivered from literal furnaces, if, if we're faithful in the midst of real difficulty, it could be something that many people see in the world system and are intrigued by and are one out of the world system. When they, when they see that kind of uh, biblical, faithful Christianity, um, we all, you could say a whole lot more about that. Thoughts on that, yeah, Scott? I would just say, uh, people, don't, people guess that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus coming or not. Like, I think it probably is a pre-incarnate Jesus is with them in there, but this was so good from one commentator. He said, Christ did not keep them out of the furnace, but found them in it. He does not always shield you from all distresses and dangers, but it is in the loneliness, in the betrayal in the loss, that the fourth man comes and walks with you. I thought, how true is that? I mean, you may go through a breakup. You may, go, you may lose a child. A miscarriage happens. You're excited about this baby, and then the miscarriage happens, or you lose a loved one, or prolonged sickness, and the fourth man comes. Like, how true is that? So often, he will come in that moment. He will strengthen you in an unusual way. I mean, what a precious thing we should pull that uh, in Hebrews it said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's a promise we can cling to. Jesus in Matthew 28, I will, like, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I mean, these are promises we should 
his presence. He may not shield us from the pain, but he is with us in, in, in the pain, in the trouble. What a precious promise that is. But then I was thinking, the, the gospel part of the end of this, where so many people brought this out, where uh, one guy said Jesus was getting a taste of the furnace before the furnace he was going to come later. Uh, Eric Alexander, this powerful preacher from Scotland for many years ago, but he said uh, Jesus had set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And he said, well, I'm paraphrasing, but like outside of Jerusalem, he would go to the fieriest of all furnaces. And then I think Ian Duguid said Jesus' soul would be, it would be burned to the core. Like he, he, he endured the, the fieriest of all furnaces. And it's in light of that truth, again, that we're looking back. Jesus has tasted the wrath of God, exhausted it, so we never have to taste any wrath of God. How can we dishonor him? Even in the smallest of things, we want to honor the Lord Jesus because he has tasted and endured and, and exhausted the wrath of God. And I just think here, you, it's a wonderful place to remember the gospel in Daniel 3. That's wonderful. And whatever, whether that was Jesus pre-incarnate or an angel, and I, I'm not sure either, it certainly represents God's presence with them. Whatever that person was, that represents God's nearness to them. And like you're saying, the fourth person doesn't show up until they're in the fire. It's not as though they're about to go in the fire and an angel shows up and says, I'm going to go with you and nothing to fear. No, they're thrown into the fire. The men throwing them in are killed on their way into the fire. They don't see any fourth person until they are in the flames. And then everyone sees this, this godlike figure, the son of the gods, as Nebuchadnezzar confusingly says. There's this angelic or divine figure there, God's presence. So, I mean, we will experience God's presence most powerfully in the fire, not outside the fire. Whatever fiery trial that comes to test us, First Peter said, we, we expect God to be with us, especially in those moments. And I, I just want to read from what you quoted from, from Ian Duguid, because um, listen to what this one pastor says. I'm going to read just for a second here and, and listen to his uh, explanation of what was happening. He says this, what was different about Jesus's furnace and the furnaces we go through is that God is with us in our furnaces. He was not with Jesus in his. Yet Jesus went through his own personal furnace experience completely alone. God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and we have the promise of the Lord's sustaining presence with us in our trials. But on the cross, Jesus felt the utter aloneness of total abandonment by God. When he passed through the waters, there was no one by his side. When the fire of God's wrath burned him to the core and blazed unchecked over him, he was entirely alone. There was no companion to share his burden. No angel sent to relieve his agony, no saving hand from God stretched down to preserve his faithful servant in his moment of greatest need. For Jesus, there was no deliverance from experiencing the power of the final enemy, death itself. Now, why would God be with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but not his own son? Why would he be faithful to his promise to be with Israel, sinners as they were, and then abandon Jesus, his perfect chosen one? You would expect it to be the other way around. And then he explains that Jesus obviously was bearing our sins. And so we deserve to be in the fires of judgment alone. But instead, we are with God. God is with us in those moments. But Jesus experienced actual abandonment in the, in the flames of his fire. There was no other man in there with him to comfort him. You know, God speaks to comfort Jesus at his baptism. He speaks at his birth with the angels coming down. Uh, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, God speaks down. In the garden, even of Gethsemane, an angel came to strengthen him. But hours later on the cross, there was no heavenly voice of approval. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. There was no angelic presence coming to help him out. He was truly abandoned in the dark alone in his furnace so that we, we would never be able to, we would never have to face that uh, when, we look to the, when we look to our future. Papa, can you uh, give us a final thought and then close us in prayer? We talked earlier about, uh, and, I, and I'm not making fun of your missionaries, because <laughs> uh, I mean, it's a testimony. I mean, th this, is, this is a testimony for us. Uh, uh, even in, the, in 1 Maccabees, which, which uh, relates the, the 
Maccabean revolt where the Jews took over Israel for 100 years and, and, and ousted uh, Antiochus IV. Uh, Mattathias, the old priest that led the rebellion, said he was looking forward to uh, a god like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and looking forward to the god that delivered uh, um, um, Daniel from the lion's den. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a testimony, it's, a, it's a, um, a witness. Like you say, Greg, we don't, we don't make a big deal of it. I mean, if, if all, these, all these events are chosen by God, not us. We're, we're just his obedient servants. And so we're to be a, a faithful witness to, and using the words of Hebrews 11, you know, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So by faith, we step up to the fires of afflictions. Pray for us. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, um, to hang out in Daniel. Uh, it, it's a beautiful book, and, and I feel like in some respects we're, we're on the shallow end, and even though it's getting deeper. And uh, I, I thank you for the witness of Daniel and his, his three friends. I thank you for the witness of uh, all the Jews that, that were carried first into captivity into Assyria and then later into Babylon and, and uh, how they were able to come back through the promises of God, through uh, Darius, and, and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, just in anticipation of the messianic line being fulfilled in Jesus. And, and Father, and, and the book of Daniel takes us all the way from the uh, from these times to the end of time. So uh, I'm just excited about what the, the weeks uh, uh, will foretell and, and, and just, uh, just looking for your spirit and guidance and, and, and help along the way, uh, Lord. And, and the hope and the faith that we have in all of this, uh, how to face adversity, how to face trials, how to face persecution, and, and, and it's certainly coming in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just so you know, two weeks from today is March 6th. We will not have the Daniel Sunday School on that Sunday. So two weeks from today, we will not have Daniel that Sunday. Romans should still be meeting, Lord willing. So if you want to go to the Roman Sunday School, please feel free to do that. But that'll be uh, on March 6th. All right, thank you all.